Hey, this is Steve, and welcome back to Restless, the podcast. You know, we would love to hear from you. And the way you can contact us is at info at restlesspodcast.com. If you'd like to be on the show, go to our website, restlesspodcast.com, and go to the drop-down menu that says Tell Your Story. Leave some information about yourself, and we'll be in touch. And tonight, or today, or wherever you might be, we have a great story. For episode three of Restless, the podcast, the story we have to share with you today is the story of Nikki. Nikki's story is one of surviving an event so traumatizing that most of us could never even imagine having been in such a situation or what that could possibly feel like. It is one of suppressed pain and anger pushed down throughout years. And it is one of learning that time does not possess the hands that heal. It is someone else. And it is also one of learning the true meaning of forgiveness. Nikki, welcome to Restless the Podcast. We are so excited to have you here and to hear your story. Well, first, I want to thank you guys for the opportunity to come on here and share my story. I believe that um, our stories are what's, what God uses to genuinely connect us together. And I think it's moving boldly forward and knowing that our stories are not normal. You know, I think that we can tend to believe the lie that our stories aren't good enough. They're not extraordinary enough to be heard and and for people to genuinely like them or, or be able to learn anything from them. And I truly believe that all of our stories are unique and we all have a unique purpose and calling to share them. And if we step out and boldly and courageously open ourselves up to do that, um, it can it can lead us to freedom and to connect with other people. So I really appreciate you guys allowing me to be on this this show to share mine. Absolutely, because we we do believe that the power in heal, healing is hearing other people's stories. Because I I think, and Luke thinks, and we think that, and everybody's story is someone else's story, or a little bit of it anyway. So go ahead, Nikki, take us on your journey. Okay. So my journey really starts about two years ago. Uh, my life was very full. I had four children. I have a, a husband that loves me and is very driven. We were financially very comfortable. We have a, our dream home out in um, on about eight acres with a plethora of animals and everything is going wonderfully. We are very involved in leadership at our church where we were serving on the pastoral team and my husband was serving and is still serving as the worship leader at our church, and I was the children's director. So there was a lot of fruit in my life. However, there was this beckoning or this yearning inside of me for more, and I silenced it for a really long time, thinking that if I voiced it, it made me seem unappreciative, and um, I was ashamed of that, that lack, that void that I felt, and it it wasn't until God really began to stir me in some really unexplained events other than him that that void would begin to get filled. So my journey kind of starts on a trip with my husband, a very normal trip. We were taking a business trip with my husband up to a place where I used to grow up. Um, for about four years, we moved out of my home state into a different state while my, my father was a salesman. And I had an opportunity to show all four of our kids where I used to live. And we were very excited about this trip because we got to spend time with 
with Mike, my husband, and their father. So it was kind of like a mini vacation. So we get ready, we go, we get up to the place where we're going to be visiting, and everything's going great. And then as we're making our, our way towards the next destination or the next really fun thing to do, my husband suggested that we go through the town and just show my, our kids where I grew up, the school I went to, the house I was, I was growing up in. And originally, I thought it was a great idea. And then all of a sudden, as we got closer to the town, I just kind of talk about my feelings shifting from being excited to like a dark cloud just kind of hovering over me. And really ruining my my experience with my children there. I was pointing things out, um, and all of a sudden, I just became really angry. And you could feel the tension in the van. Just, you could, there was a very visible shift from happy and everyone is having a good time to just this unknown tension. We went through the town and I, I kind of vaguely pointed some stuff out and then we left and um, the rest of the trip was ruined. I was easily irritated. I was very frustrated at the smallest things and, and my husband would constantly ask me, what is wrong? What's going on with you? And I didn't have an answer. I really didn't know. I was so unaware of how I got to this point of being so frustrated and when we got home, I realized in my head, but didn't voice it out, that the shift occurred when I drove through the town and drove through the field where I was raped when I was 13 years old. I had never forgotten that that had happened. I want to make that very clear. But I had suppressed it and thought, hey, you know what? I'm gonna overcome this by, I, I kind of went into this self-preservation mode for about 20 years. I thought, if I don't allow anybody to know what happened to me, if I suppress it and I become successful in every other area of my life, it will go away, that pain will stop. But the reality was it didn't. And I had, I knew in my head I was going to have to confront it. So after that trip, I came home and I wanted to start doing life again like I had prior to that trip. I wanted to continue to lead people in my church and continue to be the mom and the wife that I had been, but I couldn't. Um, that trip brought back some suppressed memories to the forefront of my life again. And I was very angry. And it was to a point where I couldn't hide it anymore. That small void before the trip became larger uh, to a point where I couldn't ignore it. I remember sitting in the driveway of my grandma's house. We were about to go in and my husband and I had just gotten into a huge argument and we both were sitting there and he looked at me before we walked in and he said, I don't know what to do. You're miserable. And I looked at him and I said, I'm not miserable. You are. And we walked into that house, not wanting to be there and pretending again, pretending everything was fine, pretending like nothing was going wrong. But the reality was behind closed doors, this yearning, this void, this suppressed memory was 
ruining my life. It was taking my thriving marriage and it was destroying it. It was dividing me from the people I loved and from, and from Jesus. And I knew that uh, at that point, if I didn't do something, if I didn't talk about it, it, it was going to destroy my marriage. It was going to destroy my life as I knew it. And everything that I loved was going to slowly be dissipated. And um, I could feel the vice of isolation just surrounding me at that point. So after that day, we had uh, an appointment, very loosely called an appointment with our pastor. He came over one night. We were very close with, with our pastors and he came over just to hang out with us. And I remember he walked in our house and what would normally be a, a, a fun and, and kind of easygoing meeting I could tell, I could, I could perceive a little bit that this had a heavier agenda to it than normal. And still to this day, I'm so thankful that he was bold enough to come forward and speak what he spoke over me that night without reservation. Because I truly don't believe that un unless I was in the place where I was and, and it was coming from him, I would not have received it. That night, there was no small talk and we went into the living room. He didn't, you know, we offered coffee and he didn't want any. So he sat and started asking us how we were doing. And we started off telling him what we told everyone. We're doing fine. You know, our life is busy and it, uh, it's, it's normal for people in their 30s. Our, we have four kids and they're constantly like a revolving door of sickness. They're little Petri dishes. So we're, we're constantly dealing with that. And um, my husband working and, and us serving as much as we were. But we were very optimistic and told him that we saw the light at the end of the tunnel, that this was just a season that we were in. And it would, it, it would you know, quickly change and shift into another new season that wasn't as straining. And I still remember him standing up in my living room and looking specifically at me, and he said, Nikki, I believe that there is something in your life that you need to address. And he said, and God just gave me a vision one day. He said, I was out at my son's baseball um, tryout or practice, and I was thinking about him and how gifted he is. And there was this other kid that I saw and this was now not just at the practice, but a vision that he had. And he said, this kid was so good at what he did that nobody really noticed that he had a deficit, that he was, that he was playing so well that nobody could really see that there was something different about him. You could, you could kind of see in his movements a little bit that there was something off, but until you really looked at him, you couldn't tell that he was playing with only one hand. He would have to quickly, and I, I remember seeing him stand up and show me this irregular motion where the, the boy would have to take his mitt off after catching it, grab the ball with the same hand and throw it. But he got so used to playing with one hand that he became really good at it to the point where no, nobody else could really tell that there was something off. And I sat very stoically on my, on my couch and I knew what he was alluding to, but I couldn't figure out how he knew. And I was a little bit scared because my husband was sitting right in that room with me. 
And I was very aware of his presence as well. And the very last thing he said was, you're like a tree, Nikki, that's been growing. And you've got this one branch, you know, it's like there's this this little infection and it's starting to seep out and infect other parts of your big beautiful tree. And he said, it's gnarled, you know, it's like you're growing really well. And then all of a sudden, um, it's starting to affect your branches. And he said, and I think there's some things that have been done to you that are causing this infection to grow. And in that moment, it took everything in me to not just burst out in tears. But I knew there was something inside of me that said, if you do that, everything is going to go away. This, this voice inside of me was telling me, you've, you've got you've to be strong. Don't give in. And I, he, he left our house that night. I said nothing to my husband. I said nothing to him. And uh, I, I continued to allow it to fester. And that's when the nightmares began. I had... We had just started to um, speak in front of our church, and I was doing generosity and connection time. I was—I uh, had grown our volunteer team at the ch- at the children's ministry from about thirty-two volunteers to one hundred and twelve, and our congregation grew from about three three hundred people to about uh, anywhere between five hundred and eight hundred, and we were moving to two gatherings. And I think it was at one point I stood up to do generosity and connection time and the nightmares that I was having in the middle of the night, they they were always of a man. And this man grew um, consistently sicker as I saw him. But it got to a point where I was seeing him during the day. This paranoia was coming over me. And I was standing up at generosity and connection time talking to, I don't know how many people were there that day, anywhere between four and 500 people. And all I could see was this man in my dreams. And it, it stopped me from saying anything that I had planned on saying. And I, I almost broke down in tears on stage. And it was at that point I realized I need to get some help. I need to, I need to talk to somebody about this. So I, I went to my pastor and said, hey, um, I think I need to go see the counselor that you see. And he said, okay, that sounds great. Um, but this counselor isn't like a normal counselor, he said to me. He said, he's very much a, uh, a, a counselor that you meet with him a couple of times. And then after you do that, he kind of sets you off. It's like he builds your nest and then you, you glean from whatever his teaching is and then you, you move on and you, you, you go on with the rest of your life. And I was like, man, that sounds great. It sounds organized, put in a box step by step. And, you know, all of the healing will occur after a, a little bit of time. And I thought, that's what I need. So I decided to go meet with him and I got some paperwork to fill out prior to meeting with him. And I I remember sitting down at my breakfast note table and filling out this paperwork. And one of the boxes that I had to check off that I 
continued, I, I had a choice to make. I was either going to lie or I was going to tell the truth. And that box was, is there any reoccurring trauma in your life that you need to address? And I could have checked no. And it took me breaking down and just crying, like this puddle of tears at that table, just to check that box that says yes. And I had to write underneath of it for the very first time in over 20 years that I was raped. And it broke me. I, I still remember, I started sitting and filling those pieces of paper out and I ended up on the floor just in this fetal position. And I, God just, I felt so unraveled and so exposed. But it was in that moment, in the moment where I felt so exposed and vulnerable that God really met me. And he said, I'm with you. All you have to do is give it to me. And it was like this burden was lifted off of my shoulders. And he, he was the one that really guided me through the process of going through the healing and the therapy that I really needed in order to realign myself with him. To fill that void. Because for the longest time, I had filled my void in my heart with self-preservation. Instead of allowing God to come in and heal me, I allowed the world to come in and try and heal me. I think a lot of times people think that sin is very visible, you know, that the enemy is this thief in the night that comes out and, he, and you, can, you can see him and his craftiness so easily. But the reality is sin is tempting and sin is enticing. And for me, after I had been raped, I had shared it with two of my friends, my closest friends that night. And what had happened was they, they turned on me. They left me. They didn't believe me. And I had to go through my freshman year in high school feeling completely isolated from everything and everyone that I knew. And not only that, I had to face my perpetrator every day. I had to pass him in the hallways. And I started to, to skip school. I would get off of the school bus and I would, I had a choice. I could, I could walk towards the open doors of my high school or I could run. And I chose to run because I felt like if I shared again with anyone what had happened, it was going to hurt more. And what do we do when we're hurt? Do we re-expose ourselves to that hurt? No, we, we guard ourselves. And that's what I had started to do. I guarded myself. And I kind of describe it in my book that I'm writing as a gunshot wound. Instead of allowing myself to properly heal from that, I just kept applying gauze after gauze after gauze to try and stop the bleeding. And I ran away. I, I went into whatever I could do to suppress the pain of that day and what I was consistently walking through in that year. I was so afraid and so ashamed and so isolated that I thought, I'm all, I'm all alone in this and I need to be my own protector. So I found solace in alcohol and drugs. Um, 
and also in being successful at, at, at other things. I really threw myself into people pleasing. You know, if I can make other people happy, it made me feel good. It took the pain away. So I decided, you know what I'm going to do, Lord? I'm not going to take what you have to give me. I've got this. I'm going to heal this on my own. And I started to, um, you know, to please my parents. I did the best that I could in school. I got the A's. I ran cross country. I played on the volleyball team. Um, I was, I was with the in crowd, but there was always this gnawing pain. Even when I got close to people, I wouldn't allow them to get too close because they could hurt me. So I decided I'm not going to let that happen. I'll get close enough for my relationships to be fruitful, but they're still going to stay superficial. And if anybody came close to my gunshot wound, if they touched it or looked at it, um, I would get very angry because I felt exposed. So for the first time in my life, going into that therapist's office, feeling exposed again, I had to really fight against those fears in order to keep moving forward. But I recognized that when I gave that pain away to Jesus and allowed him to properly heal me, I didn't have to worry anymore about... um, the pain. I didn't have to worry anymore about. So walking through the process of healing, I recognized that that was something I could not do on my own. I had every step of the way. I had to choose to give whatever difficulty I was going through to Jesus in order to get to the next step. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So in the beginning of the process of therapy, I had to really step into and recognize and become very self-aware of how much fear was guiding my life. And I've learned that when fear is our, is our beacon, our pivot, our, our, um, our source of, of driving us, Faith can't be because fear and faith can't assume the same position in our hearts. Mm -hmm. And although fear has some very pivotal and very great things about it, you know, as a nurse, I know fight or flight, if you're scared, a lot of times that can save your life. Um, If, you know, God, for like, if a bear is attacking you, you want that fight or flight to kick in, you know, you need that adrenaline. And I've heard of that fear really allowing people to do some miraculous things in order to survive. And I, I, clung to that fear even during my attack. I um I had to walk through the shame portion portion of my therapy that was one of the di- the most difficult portions of my healing process. It was what I call like the fogginess of healing where I was really angry with God. But anger was the first step in the healing process. I had to be okay with telling God that I was angry um, because it was the first emotion that I was going to show him because for the longest time I was emotionless. And it was finally when I, when I became angry that I recognized, oh, anger is a secondary emotion. Why am I angry? I'm angry because I'm sad and I'm hurt. And my anger led me to the cleansing tears that I desperately needed in order to unpack that gauze from my gunshot wound. 
And it was in that unpacking that God strategically took me, you know, and it's very, God's such a gentleman, guys. Like he, he didn't force anything on me. He was so gentle during this process. He knew exactly what I needed and when I needed it. And there was nothing else this world could offer. There was no 12-step program. There was no person or thing that could have healed me in the way that he did because there was no specific path. It was this healing process was specifically catered to me and my heart and my wound. And it was such a beautiful um, process, but it was difficult. Walking through the shame portion I had to confront a lot of suppressed memories. And for like one of the examples that I write about in my book, when I was, when I was raped, I was so scared that I didn't move. Um, I, I, I literally became catatonic. I, um, I froze there was a point where I stopped fighting and I blamed myself for the attack because I chose to stop fighting. And it wasn't until I started to walk through this healing process that I I recognized and learned I wasn't alone in that. That other people who who have been attacked actually respond in the same way as I did. And there was so much healing and recognizing that I wasn't alone in that. And I didn't go to any groups where I learned that um, through, through diligent prayer and through talking with my therapist. I always say that um, Jesus is the healer, but therapy reveals the wounds. And my therapy was revealing my wounds step by step. And Jesus was, as I un- unpacked that gauze, he was gently coming in as the ultimate physician does and cleaning out the, the little pieces as I handed them over. And one of the specific things I remembered was um, for, the, for the life of me, fall was such an anxiety inducing time. I, right as summer was ending and fall was starting, I always thought I was anxious during that time period because my husband was a football coach and I knew he was about to go back in a season and all of the responsibility of our personal lives was about to be put back on my shoulders. And I thought that's the source of my anxiety. And it was literally driving a wedge between my husband and I, because even though he wasn't even a football coach anymore, I blamed him for that anxiety. And as we would walk into fall, we really enjoyed being around bonfires with our kids And I would get physically sick at bonfires. I mean, I would not be able to sit around them for very long. And I just thought I was allergic to them. Like, you know, like the smoke of the bonfire. And I would maybe, I would, I would try to go out there with my kids and my husband and our friends. And I would maybe last, you know, 20 minutes before I'd have to leave and go somewhere else. Um, I would become physically ill. My stomach would turn and I would always blame it on something I ate that day because football season, guys, we eat all the wrong things, you know, give me all the appetizers for football games and then go sit around a bonfire. I had all of these practical reasons for why sitting around a bonfire um, made me sick until I walked into therapy. I recognized that when I was being attacked and when I decided to stop fighting, I focused through a tent wall 
on a bonfire. And that was what I looked at to try and remove myself from the pain that was happening to me. But I had suppressed that idea and that thought and that memory for so long, it started to manifest itself physically in my body when I was around anything that would trigger it. And it wasn't until I recognized that that was the source of my pain with that bonfire that I was able to heal from it. I cried. I was so upset. But after I recognized that, I kid you not, guys, I I am now able to sit with my family and make new memories around bonfires and roast marshmallows and laugh with my kids. My stomach doesn't get ill. I, I don't have allergic reactions anymore. And it's one of the most pivotal moments. You know, you wouldn't think that that was such a a big deal. But for me and for my journey, that was one of the most freeing moments in my, in the process, because in that, in that point of healing with my therapy, I was constantly asking Jesus, why, why now, why are you making me bring this back up? It's ruining my life. You're unraveling me, Lord. And I don't understand why you would allow me to confront this. It's just causing undue sources of pain and that was at a point where he said, because I'm going to heal you. I'm going to give you what you need if you trust me. From that point on, God really started to make me more aware of how fear had infested my life. And he just, through therapy, I talk about in my book, how he just started to lop off the dead or infected limbs of my tree. And that, that, that was a pruning season for me. It was really difficult. It was one of the hardest things I've ever done, but so necessary. When you think about a gunshot wound, like I often describe this wound, God had to, to take off all the calluses on that wound that I had placed on there before he could clean it out and then really get to the heart of what was causing my wound to continue to to bleed out onto the other areas of my life. But when he finally did that, he removed the bullet from inside of my wound. He removed that source. And when I allowed him to do that, that's when he was able to go in and properly pack that wound, sew it up and allow it to heal. And I can honestly tell you today that I'm very thankful for the wound that drew me closer to him. I'm no longer resentful or bitter or angry. It was in the healing process that I learned how to give up my anger and my resentment and my bitterness and trade it for forgiveness. Mm. And I walked into this place of really resisting forgiving, specifically my perpetrator, thinking if I forgive him, that means that I'm, I'm saying that what he did to me was okay. But that's not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is saying, I forgive you for doing what you did, but I'm not excusing you from what you did what you did. And I remember sitting down and writing a letter to my perpetrator. In my journal, I have a prayer journal, and it took me about five hours to write. And I, there was so much tears, and there was, there was just an agony that, um, that kind of broke me. 
again and again, but it softened me. And I remember at the end of writing that letter, I went to my therapist for the next week of my, and I told him, I said, Hey, I, um, I did what you asked. I wrote my letter, but, uh, I don't know what to do with it. Am I supposed to send it to him? I don't want to contact him again. And I remember my therapist looking at me and he said, the point of forgiveness is not to be able to reconcile with someone else. The point of forgiveness is redemption. And all you need to be redeemed is you and your heart in Jesus. And it was at that point I recognized he's right. So I decided at the end of that session, I wasn't going to send that letter off because it didn't matter to me if whatever course of, of action or forgiveness that I would be giving to my perpetrator would matter to him. What mattered was that I was ridding my heart of all the malice and the anger and giving it over to Jesus because I was never meant to carry that burden. I was never meant to try and heal that wound. And I took that letter and I burned it. And there was something about watching the ashes of my letter and all of my hurt and pain go up into dust. There was not an emotional outcry. You know, it wasn't me. There, there wasn't this moment of crying. It was, it was just like that dark cloud that hovered over me on that, that fateful trip back to the town where I recognized I needed help. It was like God just lifted it. And I could see clearly again. I could start dreaming again. Um, I could start enjoying my life again. It was in that moment that my wound became a scar. And even though I, I could see that scar, it wasn't wreaking havoc on my life anymore. God healed me and replaced my resentment and my anger and my bitterness with joy and with peace and with a freedom that I never, ever thought I'd be able to walk into. And I can honestly say today, guys, that my purpose and my calling in life has dramatically shifted, and I completely believe that it's because of Jesus and because I gave everything over to him. I'm able to hear him clearly now, whereas before he was very foggy, and I'm able to pursue a calling and a dream of writing and sharing my story without fear behind it. And I believe that in sharing this story, other people are going to get to know him as well. Nikki, uh, you said a lot of things. It's been a very difficult story to listen to, even on our end of things. But as followers of Christ, sometimes... We think that uh, knowing the Lord is kind of like magic. If we just do these things, if we're just involved with uh, going to church, reading our Bibles, that like a magic wand waved over something, it's just going to be all okay. But that's, that's not true, is it? No. I think so often, you know, I heard one time that a lot of times we can hide behind the knowledge of theology and um, not really allow God to speak in relationship to our hearts. 
Mm. And there, that's so true for me and my own story. I grew up in the church and I had a wonderful family, two wonderful parents that I love dearly and raised me correctly. And I knew of God, but I didn't know him intimately. I read the Bible and I loved the stories, but I didn't really know what it meant when people said it's a living, breathing word. And when God really stirred my soul up through this healing process, he revealed that, hey, you might know of me and know all of the right answers and have been raised around me, but I want to be in relationship with you. And I think there's such a difference between knowing God and being in relationship with him. And it takes us really giving over our hearts and desiring to be holy, desiring to, to want to live with him in order for us to really feel the presence of him in our lives. At least for me, that's, that's kind of how it worked. Absolutely. And, and uh, you ever get asked by others, well, if you know the Lord, why would he let this happen to you? Yes. Oh, yes. You know, <laughs> I'm reminded I was sitting in my therapist's office one day, and that was my main question at one of the points through the process of healing, was why? Why would God allow something so horrific and evil occur to me? And I think at one point, I told myself that it was because he wasn't with me. I told myself, there's no way if he knew what was happening to me, he would have allowed it because if he's the God that I know he is, he, he loves me too much to allow that to happen. But what I recognized in that office, I started crying and I, I finally voiced, I think it's really pivotal to, to know guys like so many times we, we hide the lies that infest our heads. And it isn't until we speak them out that they become in the light. It's when we be, they become recognized as lies. And I said for the very first time, why would God allow this to happen? And I, I even gave a biblical story behind it. I said, you remember the woman, the adulterous woman that was dragged out into the streets? Mm-hmm. In the middle of her adultery, she was dragged out and exposed. And all the men in the, in the town picked up rocks and they were about to stone her. And Jesus, all it took, Jesus was listening to the crowd condemn this woman and and they were at the brink of killing her in a very brutal way and Jesus was knelt down in the sand he was actually drawing in it like doodling while all this was going on and I looked at my therapist and I said all it took was Jesus standing up and looking at those men and saying let the first who has never sinned cast the first stone And not one single stone was thrown. Why couldn't he do that for me? Mm. Why couldn't he? All it would have taken was a whisper. And my therapist looked back at me, guys, and he said, he did not command those men not to throw the first stone. He gave them a choice. Mm. It was in that moment I recognized, I don't know what was going on in my perpetrator's mind. For all I know, God could have been desperately pleading for him to stop doing what he did. 
but he gave him a choice. And God cannot choose who he gives a choice to. He gives all of us a choice. That's, that's the beauty of love with him, is that he will not force you into agreements with him, into a relationship with him. He allows us to choose. And in that moment, my, perp- my perpetrator chose not to listen to him. And it was in that understanding that I recognized, wow, my God never left me. He was there with me every second. And not only was he with me, but he was experiencing everything I was experiencing. And there was something so, so fulfilling about that, that I had told myself a lie for the longest time that my God left me. And knowing he never left me and that he was waiting on the perfect time to to heal me. It might have taken 20 years, but he knew he knew when my heart was going to be ready to hear him. And he waited on me. And Nikki, what you were saying, I'm just kind of reminded that, you know, it's it's free will or it's not. And yeah, and that's one of the greatest gifts that he's given us, because despite what negative might become of it also comes the opportunity for the positive of choosing to know him. Yes. Hmm. Nikki, um, you spoke about forgiveness. And Mm -hmm. there even seems to be, and I'm excited that you did that, and you articulated that very well. And I was hoping if we could go back and revisit that for a moment, because do you believe that often forgiveness is just really misinterpreted, you know, exactly what it is? And, and you had mentioned that somehow we think forgiveness is like um, acting as though it never happened or somehow letting the perpetrator off the hook. That's not what it's about, is it? No. Um, I think I was under the lie for the longest time that forgiveness is for others. Mm. It's not for the person forgiving. Mm. And it wasn't until I completely understood what forgiveness was that I was able to walk into it. Mm. First of all, the the Bible is very clear that forgiveness is not an option. It's a command. Mm -hmm. Forgive as I have forgiven you is what the Lord tells us. And I think as believers and as followers, even from a very young age, the world teaches us, you know, if you think about being on a playground and a teacher walks up and sees Susie, you know, kick Bobby in the shins. We tell, we tell that kid, we tell Susie, you need to apologize for Bobby, but we're not necessarily always told why it's necessary. So I think we grow up assuming that we forgive because it's necessary in order to move on with life and for that person not to be mad at us. That's why we forgive. And I recognized that forgiveness yields so much fruit not for the person that we're forgiving, but for ourselves. When we choose not to forgive someone else, we allow anger and frustration and malice and bitterness to reside in our hearts. And where that lies and where that is allowed to, to get ingrained in our hearts, faith, faith in the Lord cannot be there. So we have to literally remove it through the process of repentance and forgiveness in order for God and the Holy Spirit to fill those, those gaps that were once taken up with resentment and anger and bitterness. 
I think two huge and pivotal pieces of forgiveness is the result can be one of two things, if not both, redemption and reconciliation. Like I said earlier, redemption is between you and the Lord. That's always, always going to occur when you walk in forgiveness. And I think it's really, this is not like a one and done thing. I have to walk in forgiveness every day. I haven't, it's not like I forgave my perpetrator once and my life is just joyous and, and full of peace. I have to continually transform my heart to keep my heart from regaining anger and resentment and bitterness because we live in a broken world and people will continually try, I think even without even knowing sometimes to hurt us. And we have to choose every day to walk in that forgiveness. Now, I don't have to write a letter to every person that is, that is hurting me right now, but I do have to choose to identify, oh, I'm hurt by this and say, either I'm going to stay angry or I'm going to stay hurt by them or I'm going to forgive them and I'm going to move forward and walk into the redemption that I know that my heart needs in that, in that forgiveness. The second thing, the reconciliation is a piece that I think we need to recognize doesn't always hold hands with redemption because reconciliation is between two people. So reconciliation is when two people come together and decide to forgive one another. And a lot of times that's a really difficult place to be in because you can, you're opening yourself up to being rejected by another person. Say if they don't accept your apology or they don't apologize themselves for wrongdoings on you. I think it's pivotal to know that sometimes opening ourselves up and making ourselves vulnerable again by walking through forgiveness if reconciliation is not possible and you experience rejection again, don't look at that rejection and, and see it as another place to hold resentment and anger. Look at it as God redirecting your life. Maybe that's, a, maybe that's not a reconciled relationship he wants you to continue to walk in. Maybe he's got something bigger and better for you. And he is taking that no and he's opening another door that will be a yes that wouldn't be opened if if you didn't walk into that rejection. And that's kind of how I see it. I am redeemed as I walk into forgiveness with the Lord. But with reconciliation, it might not it might not be a possibility. That's good. And thanks for for clarifying that whole forgiveness thing cuz to be clear, this is not about letting them off the hook, but it's about your own healing so this cancer doesn't grow in you and eat you alive. Is, is that right? Oh, yes. Yeah. Absolutely, I agree. Mm-hmm. And, and the process of healing, too, I mean, that's ugly. I mean, that hurts. I mean, that's not an overnight thing. I mean, you'll be doing that for the rest of your breath on this earth. Is that right? Yes, but it, it was interesting you really have to go against your own human instinct to avoid pain mm. with healing. Because I, like I said before, with a wound, what do you automatically do so that you cannot expose yourself to being um, hurt again? Mm-hmm. You guard it. Yep. And you push away anybody or anything that could potentially hurt that wound or cause another wound. And in my guarding, I thought I was protecting myself, but what I was doing was keeping myself from 
walking into the fruit of what my soul desperately needed, which was deep, intimate, and real relationship with my God, with Jesus, and with other people. Mm. How do and you- so that healing process was... I really had to I really had to push through and stop avoiding the pain that I had always told myself was the necessary thing to do to survive. Hmm. Did you ever find yourself guarding yourself in terms of relationships because of what happened in the past, perhaps even with your own husband or other relationships because because of the sense of, you know, will somehow will I be emotionally attacked again? So were you always in a guarded position with relationships going forward, you think? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's really interesting because I always thought I was a very open person and I was very extroverted and fun. And But what I've learned in the process of healing is being loud doesn't necessarily equate to being open. Mm. <laughs> you know, I was the life of the party and I was a people pleaser. And even with my own husband, um, we enjoyed being around each other with other people, and we still do to some extent. But going through the healing process, I had to walk into some really hard conversations with him. Mm. We had worked really well together, but as I walked through the healing process, it changed me. It changed how I communicated with him, with other people. It changed It changed who I was. I... Uh, as far as communication even is concerned, the things that would really drive me that I was really passionate about, I recognized I wasn't anymore. I, what I, I had become extroverted to please other people. And when I stopped identifying and stopped putting my self-worth and whether or not people were pleased with who I was and started putting my worth in Jesus Christ, I recognized I didn't, it didn't matter if people liked me or didn't like me. You know, I'm not Nutella. I can't be everything to everyone. You know what I mean? (laughs) I am Nikki and some people are going to accept me for who I am and some people aren't. And that's okay because I'm not meant to be everything to everyone. Mm -hmm. That's, that's Jesus's job. So I really had to walk my husband in the, in the middle of the process of healing was like, who are you? You know, you used to thrive on big groups of people and and you were the life of the party and now you you tend to really shy away from that and it was it was a huge uh, it was a learning curve for us both because i recognized i didn't really like that i did that because i felt like i had to not because i wanted to i really i became more of an internal processor than i was before so um in the in the midst of decisions where we would be able to talk through things immediately, it took me a little bit longer, um, which caused some issues with communication with my husband too. Some other deep issues was my husband and I learned to thrive in a, a very, we were intimate, but we replaced physical intimacy with emotional intimacy. And we had to learn to balance the two. Mm-hmm. We never really prayed together. Mm. We had to learn how to pray together. I, we had to force ourselves into that uncomfort. And I never thought that that would be so. I mean, we were serving on the pastoral team, guys, uh, at our church. And we came to this realization that we pray separately, but we don't pray together. Mm. And when we do, it's with our kids at dinner time, you know? 
or at bedtime. And that's something that we've walked into. And honestly, walking into a more emotionally intimate relationship with him and with Jesus has realigned our hearts in a way that we would have never been able to really fall in line with if it wasn't for walking through that healing process. It's really interesting too, because (laughs) God doesn't work in one lane. When he heals one thing, it, it tends to ripple out into other areas of your life and into other people. So as I thought he was just healing me through this process, he was healing my husband, our, some of our, fina- our family dynamics. He was healing me as a mom, as a friend. Um, it, he really chiseled away at the unhealth, like I said, and really started to grow new life not just with me, but within the relationships around me. Mm. Nikki, what do you say to other women listening to this right now? We often, as followers of Christ, we, we can speak the language, we can know the stuff, as you said before, we can know about something, but do we really know the Lord? I mean, but there's also a side of practicality that was about Jesus. Mm-hmm. What do they do next? I mean, it's not about just memorizing more scripture or attending more committee meetings or services. What does women practically do? And maybe even that husband who knows his wife has been through a traumatic event at some point in their lives. What practically must they do next? So I'd really like to speak to two, two, two people. Hmm. I'd like to speak to a woman or a man, honestly, mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. has been a victim of an attack um, or any, honestly, guys, through any trauma, big or small, it mm-hmm. doesn't have to be any, you know, maybe you just were rejected as a kid, mm-hmm. you know, you were made fun of because you wore the wrong type of shoes or you, you spilled your lunch tray in the middle of school and everybody laughed at you for that. It doesn't matter how big or small that wound is. There are a couple of things that, that need to be spoken out that I think are pivotal in a healing process and getting to know Jesus for the victim. When you share your story, whether it's the first time or the 80,000th time, especially with something that's uncomfortable, a subject like sexual trauma, people don't know what to say. And a lot of times when you speak your story out, people will say things and unintentionally shoot more daggers into an already infested wound. And you will feel more shame sometimes when you speak out some of what your story is. And I want to speak to that victim right now. No matter what that person says, it's not your fault. No matter what you wore, whether you drank, what the circumstances were, I think everybody needs to know that the victim already blames themselves for what happened to them. And here's the reality, guys. If, if that person, if that woman was walking down, you know, the middle of Main Street, just drunk as a skunk and completely naked, it's still not her fault. That is not consent for someone else to come and take advantage or touch that person. Now, will that, will that decision make you more vulnerable to somebody coming and taking advantage of you. Of course, we live in a broken world. And unfortunately, people that see other people vulnerable 
don't choose to lend a helping hand. They choose to take advantage. So we have to be careful in how we walk, right? Mm. We have to be careful in the decisions that we make. But just because we've made a bad decision does not mean that we've caused harm to be placed upon us. And I think that victim needs to know it's not your fault, mm. that you are loved, you are worthy. And if, if you're willing to step into healing and step into the painful portions of it, it will bear a fruit like you've never experienced before. And that void and that silencing that you feel inside of you will be replaced with joy and the peace that you desire and the freedom that you need in order to walk forward in your life and begin to dream again, begin to have a purpose and a calling that's so clear in your life that it doesn't matter who accepts it or who doesn't. The other person is the spouse or the person that's talking with the victim. I think a lot of times we want to have the words to try and fix it because we innately don't want to see someone in pain. But what I've found is that when someone comes to us and they share something that's very painful to hear, it's best to just listen. It's best to sit in the ashes of their past with them and come alongside them. Cry with them. They want to know that you feel the pain as well. But we are not meant to fix them. That's Jesus's job. What we need to do is recognize that some of our questions and some of the things that we say can actually hurt more. You know, I think very innocently, some of the people that I've shared this with before had asked questions like, you know, Nikki, why were you out so late? Or how much did you have to drink? What were you wearing? And I don't think they knew. I don't think that they intended to place blame. I think they just honestly wanted to know. But in my heart, with someone who had already blamed herself for what had happened, it was, it was, it was kind of fueling that lie saying, see, it was the enemy whispering in my ear through them saying, see, it really is your fault. Mm. You shouldn't have been out. You chose to be out there. It's your fault. Mm. And it really, it really hurt. And it wasn't until I got to this point that I can, I can vocalize and say to those people that are listening to a victim, no matter what your opinion is or what you're hearing, sometimes it's best. I would say most of the time it's best to just sit and the ashes of their pain with them. And then at the end of that conversation, after their story is told, if you don't know what to do, if you're unsure of where to go, the number one thing to do is to pray about it. Mm. Absolutely. Go straight to the source and he will guide you and he will tell you what you need to do. That's incredible, Nikki. And I think there's incredible power in the words that you spoke of and regarding that we can't fix it. It's our role to simply be there and not let them be alone in this process. But it's the, the repair, the healing is in Christ, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. That's powerful. And thank you so much for clarifying that because sometimes I think as followers of Christ, we think, you know, what can I do to fix it? Particularly men, we're about fixing things. And, oh, and yes. so we just open our mouth and say things that uh, don't help. But people have that tendency just to want to fix things and in that process actually making things worse, would you say? 
Yeah, mm. absolutely. That's great. Nikki, your story has been difficult to listen to, but powerful in its potential by which to heal other people. And I, I'm, I'm thinking of that moment after the resurrection of Christ when he enters into that locked room and there is Thomas and he shows him his wounds. And that was healing for Thomas in a lot of different ways. I can only imagine from that point forward, Thomas was a different man. Is this the kind of the same thing where now you have the strength to show others your wounds and there may be healing in that? Honestly, guys, before I came on this podcast today, I was praying because I was so nervous mm. <laughs> to share. And it's one of the things I spoke out while I was praying was, God, I just want you to speak through me. I want you to use me as your vessel because I'm too weak and mm -hmm. I don't have the words. And it honestly, this calling that he's put on my life to share this is not something I could do on my own. I am not, I am not capable on my own to walk this path, but I know that if I cling to him, that he'll make it possible. And even you speaking out about Jesus showing his wounds to Thomas, what it reminded me of is sometimes along our way and any journey, I think life is full of just trauma. You're either, whether it's big or small, you're either in some, in a difficult position, coming out of a di difficult position, or you're going to move into another difficult position, but it's how we handle those difficult seasons that are going to change the trajectory of our lives. And one of the most pivotal things that I've learned is we can't assume that Jesus doesn't understand our pain or where we're at. Because I think it's really important to know that when Jesus was on the cross, when he cried out to, to his own father, it says that the whole earth went dark mm -hmm. and he, he didn't hear his father in that moment. Mm -hmm. he, he alone in the greatest work he's ever done in his whole ministry throughout life, he was rejected by his own father. And it was in that, it was in that dark period of time that he did the most crucial and most vital sacrifice for us of love and giving up his life for us. There is, I think in that moment, thinking about it from that perspective, we realize there's nothing that we are going through, have gone through, or are about to go through that he doesn't know what that's like. Mm -hmm. And as long as we continue to lean on him through those difficult seasons, he's going to lead us out of them. And we're going to not only become stronger from them, but we're going to grow closer to him. But if we try and deal with them on our own, the world is going to use that. The enemy is going to use that as a playground to play in. The enemy is very crafty. If we are not, if we are not looking for God in those difficult seasons, that's when the enemy tries to come in to kill, destroy. He's a thief. He wants to steal our joy. He wants to steal our peace. He wants to steal our freedom. And it doesn't come through, you know, this really clear-cut 
avenue. It's not like he's just knocking on your door and you open it and you see a thief, right? He, he comes in the night. He's disguised. He's disguised as comforts. You know, you need that drink, Nikki. You've had a really long day. Just have one. Nikki, you deserve to go out and, and party. Hey, Nikki, that person over there that doesn't like you, go do whatever you have to do to please them. That's going to make you feel better. These are little white lies, the, the little foxes that creep into a wound that tend to grow it. And if we're not really careful, if we're not, if we're not dressed in the full armor of God, if we don't know his word, if we are not clutching onto him in our prayers, then the enemy can easily seep the joy and that wholeness and peace out of our life. And I think it's important to recognize that God has a plan for us, but so does the enemy. Mm-hmm. And God, if, we're, if we are latching onto him, he's going to give us a battle plan. One of my battle plans that he kind of uncovered through this healing process is after my attack, I didn't even recognize this, guys, until a couple of months ago, but I used to sing. I was in singing competitions. I was um, in shows both uh, in my school and my church. I sang a lot, but I stopped singing. Hmm. And it wasn't until a couple of months ago that God really revealed to me, I need you to sing. And it wasn't to perform, but it was to worship him. And in those moments when I feel devastated, because I still have devastating moments, I have to choose to sing to him. I have to choose to rise above my external circumstances and latch on to him. And it's in those moments when I'm worshiping, worshiping him, despite what's happening and despite my hurt or my pain, that he softens my heart and that he grounds me. Well, Nikki, this has been an incredible story, and we're going to begin to close out our, our time with you today. And I want to thank you so much for having the courage. You, you spoke a little bit ago about you know, feeling nervous, not sure what, how God would speak through you, but you have been extraordinarily articulate and extraordinarily powerful in what you've said, and, and I think you need to know that. Thank you so much, Steve. This has been a wonderful experience and opportunity. And I really am just very thankful that you guys have given me this platform to be able to share my story and possibly reach others that might have needed to hear it to grow closer to to Jesus. You know it. And Nikki, your story is, it's really quite something. And when I think about it, I'm reminded of uh, something that both Steve and I, have, we kind of keep seeing this come up, but I just think that you know, that's more than a coincidence that we do, that yours is a story of how a victim becomes a victor. And mm-hmm. what I'm reminded of is when Jacob wrestled with God in the Old Testament. And in that process, God came down to meet him where he was and, re- yes. and wrestle with him. And... um but that could be a very painful process as Jacob <laughs> tore his hip tendon in that process, uh, which I'm sure was incredibly painful. But he walks away from that completely transformed, even given a new name and a new destiny proclaimed for him. Yes. And I, his, walk, his walk was, I'm sure after that struggle, he walked with a limp. Oh, yeah. You uh, know? He did. <laughs> I'm positive. But... 
he was more fulfilled with walking with that limp than he ever was walking without it. Amen. Nikki, thank you so much. And I hope that we can stay in touch as we hear about the incredible things. Tell us again about the name of your book. Uh, so it's called Unashamed. And um, I am in the middle of writing my book proposal. I have a, it's almost completely done. And I've written my query letter. It's about to go out to a couple of different literary agencies. And uh, we'll see what God wants to do with it. You know, this is one of those things where I I kind of just am walking in faith that this is what God has called me to do. If you would have told me, guys, if you would have told me a year ago that I would be writing a book, I would have laughed at you. <laughs> <laughs> this was not something that was on my radar at all. I, I honestly thought after being at home with my kids, I'd go back into the nursing field and my husband would, you know, continue to, to work for the company. And that would be it. That would be what I was supposed to do. And maybe I'd continue to pastor at our church, but he has really changed the trajectory of my life and placed a calling and a dream to share my story with as many people as I can. And I'm, I'm walking into faith with this with this calling and purpose, knowing that no matter what happens, even if it reaches one person, it's worth it. Well, we look forward to hearing about the incredible things that God will do before you and before the people that you'll be involved with in healing. So, Nikki, thank you so much. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate you. Our pleasure, and thank you. Nikki has a passion for sharing her story in the hopes it will encourage others to discover their own freedom in Jesus. You can find out more about her upcoming book, Unashamed, and her other ministries by visiting www.nikkigodsild.com. That's N-I-K-K-I-G-O-D-S-I-L.com. And by following her on Instagram for daily encouragements. I'll also post the link to our website in the episode description. Thank you for listening to Episode 3 of Restless the Podcast featuring Nikki. For we here at Restless the Podcast are restless to find the one who said, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. For whom is your heart restless? And for today, whom can give your heart victory? You're my soul.